Our text this morning is Romans chapter 8, verse 17, and we're going to be focusing on the second half of the verse. Um, But again, let's read this section for context and ask the Lord that He would speak to our hearts. Romans 8, starting in verse 12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body... You will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him that we may also be glorified together. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your presence with us this morning and Your promise that where two or three are gathered in My name, there You are also. Father, we need Your help this morning to illumine Your own Word to our hearts, to transform us from within, Lord, to cause us to walk in Your way and to hate sin and love righteousness. Father, we pray for your blessing that we would grow in your grace and your knowledge that you would receive the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please be seated. Well, we've been learning about the many, many blessings of the man, woman, and child who is justified freely by grace through faith alone and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Chapter 8, I hope as you are seeing, is a wonderful expansion of Romans chapter 5, all because we've been justified by faith. And the Lord our God wants us to know, wants you, dear children of the Lord, to know His blessing. And His blessing is that He has brought salvation to you. And He wants you to be assured of that. So much so that you are able to endure whatever He would ordain in this life for your good and for His glory. And so we have been uh, reading uh, verses 12 through 17 the last couple of weeks, and Paul is just building um, one argument upon another. And in the midst of all of this glory, to see that we are uh, no longer bound to live for the flesh, but we are entirely indebted and want to be indebted to the Spirit of God for what He has done for us in cleansing us of our sins, that we know that we are led by Him, that we know that we are children of God because He's put a new instinct in our hearts to cry out to Him, Abba, Father, to know that if we are truly children of His, then we are inheritors, and the inheritance is God Himself in all His fullness, and every blessing that emanates from Him in Christ to us is ours forever. We are children and inheritors. We have been adopted as sons. We have the full rights and privileges of sonship before Him. We are no longer condemned. That's how the chapter started. Those who are in Christ have no condemnation, not even the least bit, and it will never come up again. Because the Lord has canceled all of our sins, even our future sins, we have yet to commit on that cross at Calvary. In the midst of this discussion, Paul introduces suffering. 
In the midst of the glory and the pinnacle, the mountain peak, so to speak, that we are climbing, as we crest the apex, Paul is saying, don't forget about suffering. Why does he do that here? Why is in in the midst of all the blessings of justification, does he remind us about suffering? Well, if you were with us um, in the series a while ago, in Romans chapter 5, Paul had previewed this for us. In verse 3, he says, not only that, in other words, not only do we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, access by faith into this grace in which we stand, where we rejoice in hope of the glory of God that He is going to reveal in us and through us. Not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces, works out to completion, perseverance. That is, endurance, great endurance, patient endurance. And patient endurance works out proven character, the likeness of God Himself in your own life. And that proven character produces hope. Not the empty um, theoretical hope of what I think might happen if all the circumstances line up properly, but this hope that is spoken of is a rock-solid assurance of what is just not yet manifested to the eye. It will come to pass, and that hope is we will see the Lord. We will be with Him forever. So, this idea of suffering, Paul previewed in Romans chapter 5, it's related to tribulation, to pressure. But that pressure works a wonderful promise for us, which is more assurance. Assurance that we are His as we see His own his very own character being developed in us. So, Paul is going to expand that idea here, not just in verse 17 of chapter 8, but really for the rest of this chapter. The rest of this chapter is, you could entitle it, From Suffering to Glory. There's another reason why it's important we consider suffering at this point. And you remember, the the chapter starts with being in Christ. That phrase is so key. We are in Christ, which means that we are partakers of the experiences of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are partakers of His death and resurrection, as we saw in Romans chapter 6. We are partakers of His inheritance, as we just saw in Romans chapter 8. But we are also partakers of His sufferings. His sufferings. It's part of being united to Christ. And Paul knows, frankly, that his readers in Rome are dealing with suffering in their actual experience. They might read the letter that, of the apostle and say, Paul, that all sounds, sounds so wonderful, the, the glory of being justified freely in Christ and all the blessings that come from it. But what do I do now in my present experience where I just feel pain and suffering? And so Paul is going to address that point. See, Paul knew that the evil one, the devil himself, is very good at bringing accusations against the brethren. This is what he does. His name, Diabolos, the devil, means one who hurls accusations across. And so he is constantly firing his darts at us. And what are those darts that he might fire at the believers in Rome and and at us this morning? Well, he might say something like this. Well, now, consider your life in Christ. Now that you've come to him, and look how much more difficult your life has become. Do you really think that there's something in Christianity? 
I mean, if Christianity is all about glory, why are you suffering? There shouldn't be any suffering in Christianity. Jesus has already suffered, so you shouldn't have to. So the promises of God must not be true. Christianity is just a sham. Or the accusation might come, the temptation to doubt the Lord might come in this way. You know, if you were really a Christian, you would be blessed and not be suffering. You just don't have enough faith, or perhaps you're not really a Christian at all. You see? So either way, he's trying to discredit the work of God, either in Christ himself or in us. So Paul is writing to comfort the children of God, and frankly, he's going to turn this, these arguments or these accusations of the devil on their head. And he's going to show the very fact that you suffer with Christ evidences, it proves, it's one of the strongest proofs that you belong to him, that you are his son and daughter. So I want to give you three points as we consider the message this morning for our, as our outline. The first is the certainty of suffering, the certainty of suffering. The second is the spectrum of suffering. How does suffering actually look when we consider it in the Scriptures? And thirdly, the satisfaction in our suffering, the satisfaction in our suffering. So the certainty, the spectrum, and the satisfaction. Let's start with the certainty of suffering, and let's read verse 17 again. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him. Let's stop there. I have to just comment on this particular part of the phrase, if indeed we suffer with Him, and deal with some of the grammar here, because this sounds like a conditional statement, doesn't it? It sounds like if we suffer, then we will be glorified together. But what's actually happening in the Greek here is there, this is called a, a construct of a fulfilled condition. So this should not be translated as if indeed, but really since indeed, or seeing that. So a good translation for the verse might be something like this. Since the fact that we are now sharing in His sufferings means that hereafter we shall share in His glory. You see, there is a certainty to suffering, and Paul wants to underscore that for us. All who are children suffer with Christ. And since we suffer, we will also be glorified together. So what does it mean to suffer with Christ? I mean, what is the suffering specifically that he's talking about? And it's important to understand what it's not. There's many ideas of suffering with Christ, and we have to be clear about what is in view here in the text. The suffering that Paul is describing here is not a general suffering that is common to all men. It's not a suffering that is universal to all mankind simply by virtue of the fact that he is living in a fallen world and the fact that we become sick. We have disease. We have aches and pains as we age. We hunger and we thirst. We toil with hard work. We may lose loved ones. All of these are indeed sufferings, and we don't minimize those. And all of those really are the result of sin. But they're common to all men. The suffering that Paul has in view here is unique to the children of God, to those who are joined with Christ. This is a particular lot that has been ordained for us. 
It's also important to mention that the suffering is not referring to consequences, natural consequences, that result from your own sin, from doing what is wrong, for making choices that are sinful instead of choices that are good. It's not about the one who perhaps suffers financially because he's defrauded his employer and he's been fired, or the one who has committed a crime and has been lawfully imprisoned, or perhaps because you were a busybody in other people's matters and now they've distanced you or cut you off from a relationship. He's not talking about that kind of suffering here. What Paul says here is he uses the word that means to suffer or feel pain together with, to experience the troubles and persecutions of another with Christ. So you could say this, it means to suffer the same things that he suffered or to share in the experience of suffering that Jesus himself went through. And Paul, it's so interesting to me because I love studying the Greek on this, he uses the same prefix, syn, S-Y-N, which means together with. He uses that three times in verses 16 and 17 when he says that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, bears witness together with our spirit. That same prefix, sin, is used. When we are called joint heirs with Christ, we are sin heirs with Christ. And here, the third time, we are suffering with Him. The idea that He's, um, in no uncertain terms, trying to say is this is our union with Christ. We are joined to Him, and we need to understand the extent to which we are joined to Him. Christianity is a package. We don't come to it, like Dr. Sproul used to say, as a buffet and pick out the things that we like only and leave the things that we don't care for. Christianity is a whole package. We take the whole Christ or we don't take Him at all. Some of the ways that suffering, this suffering, is referred to in the Scripture is the following, and you'll be familiar with many of these terms. It's called suffering for righteousness' sake. It's called suffering for the kingdom of God or suffering for Christ. It is to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Peter calls it to be a partaker of Christ's sufferings, or to suffer as a Christian. Paul says it is to suffer for Christ's name, or for His sake. So, if you wanted to boil it down simply, you could just simply think of it this way. To suffer with Christ is simply to suffer because of our allegiance with Him. Because we are joined to Him, because we've received Him, because we claim Him as our own, as our Lord and Savior, we suffer with Him. And in in order to understand this idea of suffering with Christ, it really behooves us to understand first how it is that Jesus Himself suffered. How is it that He suffered in the world? And and to see that, I want to direct your attention to John chapter 1. So if you would turn with me to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, this is John 1, 1, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. This is introducing the eternal Word of God, Jesus Christ. And John says, 
In him was life, all life. And his life was the light of men. He is the one who has lighted every man that comes into the world. That's a conscience. He's given us all the knowledge of God as our creator. No one is an atheist. And we've talked about that extensively in our Romans 1 study. So this light comes to the world and John the Baptist bears witness of him. In verse 8 it says, he, John, was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. should be a capital L because it refers to Christ. Verse 9, that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world, here's the shock, did not know him. He made all things and his own did not recognize him. Verse 11, he came to his own, that is to the domain of mankind, and his own, that is his own people, the Jews, did not receive him. And the question is, why not? Why did those who were created by God, who have a knowledge of this same God as creator in their own conscience, why did they not receive him? This is the one who came to his own people. This is the son of David, the son of Abraham, who came as the promised Messiah, who is the fulfillment of all prophecy from the Old Testament, and yet his own did not recognize him. The answer to that question we get in John chapter 3 in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Look with me at verse 19. John three nineteen, and this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, that is Christ, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. That, loved ones, is the commentary on why Jesus, the creator of the world and of all mankind, was rejected by his own creations. They love evil. They love darkness, they practice evil, and as such, they hate the light. Jesus himself, the light of the world. And what are those evil deeds that they practice? It's not just what some think are the obvious deeds of sin, like drunkenness or theft or adultery or sacrificing to pagan idols. These are attitudes of the heart that are exposed by this wonderful light of the Lord Jesus and His Word. This is the fact that men are exposed for only doing their deeds to be seen by men. They are exposed for seeking honor from each other and not from God, nor seeking the honor that is due to the only God. No, this is an evil that is a commending of oneself this is an evil that is centered in selfish ambition and pride, serving oneself, being faithful to oneself rather than to the true God for whom we were made, for whose pleasure we were created. This is an evil that scoffs at the truth, that is disobedient to the truth, and that prefers the lie and loves the lie. This is an evil that has a high opinion of self and so takes 
upon oneself to judge matters according to the hearing of their own ears and the sight of their own eyes, to use their own senses to come to judgments rather than using the objective standard of the perfect, forever settled Word of God. That's the kind of evil that Jesus exposed in the hearts of sinful men. In short, we're talking about exposing self-worship in the creation who have been corrupted by sin. Self-worship rather than the worship of the Lord God Almighty. And so, how did Jesus Christ suffer as light? He simply was a light in a dark world. He simply exposed the darkness of the human heart and He was hated for it. He was hated without cause. Without cause in this sense, without cause in Himself. He did nothing wrong to provoke anyone else to hate Him. He gave no one else a valid reason to hate Him. He simply exposed their darkness with His light. And that has been the pattern of the righteous and the wicked from the beginning of the Scriptures. You remember immediately after the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 4, we have the account of the first murder among two people. They were among Adam's children, where Cain rises up and slays Abel, murders him. And John in 1 John chapter 3 gives us the reason why he did this. He says it's because Cain was of the wicked one. He was not of God. And it was Cain's works that were evil and his brother's works were righteous. That was the reason he killed his brother. He simply hated the light that Abel was in exposing the darkness in Cain's heart. You see, the darkness doesn't just retreat from the light, recoil from the light, but it hates the light and it actively seeks to put out the light to kill it. It doesn't want the exposure of truth because it doesn't feel good. So how did they treat the Son of God, the light of the world? Well, very much the same way. They sought to put out His light. And we see it throughout His life from the very beginning of His life where He was refused a birthplace among men in the inn and was forced to, give, to be birthed with the animals in a feeding trough. The King of glory was born in great humility. And then when he was a toddler, Herod sought his life, persecuted him, sought to kill him, and killed all the baby boys to and under in that part of the world at that time. But the Lord was faithful, protected Jesus, brought him and his family to Egypt for a time. And then we see later when Jesus comes into his public ministry as an adult, and he is accused time and time again, and what of? Of indulgence, of being a, a drunkard, and a glutton, somebody who was a friend of sinners, which was true, but the ones who were accusing him did not view themselves as sinners, and so they were accusing the Son of God as being sinful, which he was not. They accused him of blasphemy, that he would receive and accept the worship of God, that he would forgive sins, and that he claimed to be God, all of which were true, but they viewed it as blasphemy. They accused him of breaking the Sabbath when he only fulfilled it. They accused him of deceiving the people when he only taught them truth. They accused him of being demon-possessed. And they blasphemed him by calling him Beelzebub, the prince of the demons, and saying that all of his works were done not by the power of God, but by the power of the demons. 
They accused him of having an illegitimate birth, though he was the son of the king. And when he preached the truth of the kingdom of God, they only tried to seize him and to stone him. And as he taught the truth, they hunted him as one would hunt an animal, lying in wait for him, waiting to trap him in his words so that they might have something to accuse him of. And when they couldn't trap him, they arraigned false witnesses against him as worthless men to make up lies about him because no one could substantiate a truthful claim against him. And that was from the leadership in Israel. That was from the religious leaders who knew the Scriptures that this kind of vitriol hatred comes. And then we have his closest friends, his dear disciples, into whom he pours his life for three and a half years, teaching them, showing them his mighty deeds, and speaking the Word of God to them. And what happens with them but that they abandon him when he is arrested and taken away to trial? Peter denies him three times. The one who was one of the closest of his disciples, one who was in the inner circle with Jesus, denies him three times. Judas betrays him and sells him out for the price of a slave. The rest of the disciples are just scattered like sheep, aren't they? After he's arrested. And then Jesus is led away as a lamb to the slaughter, and we There see that he is scourged by a cohort of Roman soldiers who use barbaric torture with a cat of nine tails, striking his back and lacerating his skin, which would expose incredible horrors that you wouldn't want to see. And he's forced to trial where he is spat upon in the face. He's stripped naked. He is beaten and struck in the face. His beard is plucked out. They plate a crown of thorns and put it onto his head and press it into his temples. They put a crown on him and dress him as a king and they mock him. And then they force him to bear his own cross and they parade him through the street where he is further mocked and ridiculed. And then they nail him to that same cross and they lift him up for all men to see that he hangs there as one with others as a common criminal, with thieves on either side of him. And even there, he's taunted by the people, if you are the Son of God, then come down from the cross. Save yourself. Why all this hatred? What were Jesus' crimes? If you look at the record of his life, what did he do in the world but great good? He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He restored injuries. He healed incurable disease and conditions like paralysis, like deafness, like blindness, like leprosy. He cast out demons and he even raised the dead. He manifested the works of God to show that he was the true king of the kingdom of God. And their response was they wanted to kill him. They wanted to put out his light. Why? So they could continue living for themselves seeking the glory of men, loving the lie, worshiping self. In Psalm chapter 69, this was previewed by David about a thousand years before Christ was ever born in this world. This was our corporate reading this morning. I would just call your attention to a few verses starting in verse 4. Psalm 69 verse 4. 
This is David speaking, but this psalm has many messianic overtones that would point to Christ himself. Not all of them, and I'll show you some differences, but listen to this. Psalm 69.4, those who hate me without a cause, without a cause, are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. Though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. O God, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from you. So this is clearly David speaking, not the Lord Jesus because he had no sin. You know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from you. Let not those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. In other words, I know that I'm a sinner, Lord, but may my sins never cause anyone else to stumble. Verse 7, because for your sake I have borne reproach. Shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up. And you remember that that was quoted when Jesus turned over the tables of the money changers in the temple when he came the first time in his ministry. You see, David and Christ and all who are in Christ can say something of this, they hated me without a cause. They hated me without a cause. It was because of your sake that I have borne reproach, Lord. The shame that covers me, that covers us, are the reproaches of those who reproach you, God. Your reproach has fallen on me and has fallen on you if you're in Christ. That's why Jesus Christ is described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief by Isaiah in chapter 53. You know, there is no record ever that the Lord Jesus Christ laughed in this world. There's no record of that in the Scripture. He was full of joy when he was in heaven with his Father and with the Spirit communing with them. But when he descended into this world of darkness, so tainted with sin, he saw and experienced a wreckage in all of his precious creation that you cannot imagine. The earth itself was cursed. What was once a beautiful paradise, a garden with lush trees and, and every beautiful thing you could imagine that grows... <clears throat> has become a wilderness overrun by beasts and thorns and thistles. He saw disease and defects of the body and demon possession and death abounding. And he saw men, women, and children who were slaves of the devil, whose eyes had been blinded to the truth, to the light of the world, and not only blinded but actually hating him, seeking to kill him. Is it any wonder that his heart was grieved, that he was a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief? And then when Jesus is put on the cross, Isaiah says this, that we, that is the world of men, esteemed him, Jesus Christ, stricken and smitten by God, afflicted by God. In other words, we looked at him 
and assumed that he was dying for his own sins. But Isaiah says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, the scourging of God that was for our peace, that was required for us to have peace with God, was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Christ suffered for our sins and because of our sins. His physical sufferings that we recounted, they paled in comparison to the hell that He experienced on the cross when the Father poured out the fullness of His wrath on Him. All the sins of all His people of all time laid on His shoulders at a moment in time, crushing Him. What was the nature of Christ's sufferings? You could say this, in brief, He suffered for our sins. He suffered for our sins without giving any cause for the suffering by any sin of his own. So when Paul says, since indeed we suffer with him, he means that we also partake of the same sufferings. Which means what? We share in his experience, we suffer for sin. And I'm going to explain what that means as we go. But that's the idea I want you to keep in your mind. Our striving, our battle is against sin, just like his was. Not in himself, but in the world and in the devil. We are in union with Christ. We are partakers of his sufferings. And the Lord Jesus said it would be so. Um, We were in Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, John chapter 15 this morning in our Sunday school. Let's go there together again. And this is a little different section in chapter 15. Join me in John chapter 15, starting in verse 18. This is what Christ prepared his disciples for before he went to the cross, and this is the preparation that we all need to hear as we live in this world as Christians who are in union with Christ. He says this in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He doesn't say that the world will hate you. He says the world hates you. That's their inclination already. That's their stance toward all Christians. They hate them. That word means to dis to detest so much that one is prompted to pursue with persecution. In other words, to hunt them down for destruction. That's the kind of hatred that Jesus is talking about. And he says this in verse 20, Therefore, excuse me, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. They will persecute you. Why? You're not of the world. Christ has chosen you out of the world. He's united you with himself. They persecuted the master. So do you think that they're not going to do the exact same thing to the servants of the master? They are. And I want you to notice, they will persecute you. That word again, it means to hunt down like an animal. This is not spoken to just these disciples or some particular class of Christians who um, receive 
an extreme amount of suffering relative to other Christians. This is spoken to all Christians. They will persecute you. And who's the they? Well, it's the world. In chapter 14, verse 30, Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Satan, the devil, is called the ruler of this world. He hates God, he hates God's Christ, and he hates those who are in Christ. So the world hates us, the devil hates us. Verse 21, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. This now is the reason why they persecute. This is why they will come after you, because they do not know him who sent me. This, loved ones, is the reason for the suffering. They don't know God. And remember, Romans 1, everyone knows God as creator, but they don't know him as savior. That's the key. They don't know him as savior. They don't perceive Jesus as the Messiah who takes away their sins. And for that reason, they will persecute you. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have had no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He's not saying that they were sinless before he addressed them. He's saying, now that the light has exposed their darkness, they are responsible for that light. They're more responsible than they were before. They have specific sin against the light of Christ that they cannot excuse. He who hates me hates my Father also. That is astounding. Anyone who does not love Jesus Christ and receive him as their Lord and Savior, really hates God the Father, is what he's saying. And you say, well, but there's people who don't hate Christ, they just don't love him. They're more neutral toward him. There's no such category in God's mind. Why? Because God is supreme. You remember the greatest commandment, that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He is to be first and only in your heart. And if he takes any other position, excluded completely or served alongside with a, a fullness of other idols, you hate him in his mind. You hate him or you love him. No one can serve two masters, right? He will either love the one or hate the other. Those are the two options. Those who hate Christ hate my Father also, he says. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have had no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my Father. And then notice this. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is spoken in their law. They hated me without a cause. Where's that from? Psalm 69. You see? This is how the world responds to the light of Jesus Christ and all those who are in union with Him. Dr. Sproul said this once, the world's hatred is not due to what Christ's disciples do wrong, but to what they do right, namely their allegiance with Jesus. That is counterintuitive to a lot of people, but that is the truth. And really, that's been the experience of all the righteous throughout history. That is, those who are justified by faith. They've all had the same plight. It was true of all the prophets. It's true of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And therefore, it's true of the body connected to the head, the church, us. So should we expect suffering? Yeah. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, that is the wicked, He is blasphemed, but on your part, that is the righteous, He is glorified. And then Peter says in 1 Peter 4.19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. We need to get our, our minds around this. Suffering with Christ is the will of God. It's been ordained for all of us who are in Christ. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said this, and this was not his quote. He was actually quoting it from a, a source he was, uh, was unaware of, an anonymous source, but it's so apropos to this particular point. He said this, All Christ's sheep are branded with a cross, and that not in the fleece only, but also in the flesh. We're all branded with a cross, not just in the fleece where it doesn't hurt, but in the flesh where it hurts, where there's a mark that remains. That's the idea that Paul was conveying when he said, I bear in my own body the marks, the scars of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where's that from? It's from being a partaker of His sufferings. And you bear those marks as well, brothers and sisters, and so do I. This is the certainty of suffering for all true believers, the certainty of suffering. The second point is this, the spectrum of suffering. What does the suffering look like in our actual experience and from Scripture? Well, if we share in Christ's experiences of suffering, then there's a spectrum of suffering that we may endure in other words, suffering can come from a variety of experiences, and it can come from a variety of sources. After Jesus warns the disciples of the world's hatred in John 15, He sums up His instruction to them in this upper room discourse just before He prays to His Father in the hearing of His people. But the last of His instruction to His disciples was in John 16, 33, in this discourse, and he says this, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Tribulation, you have <clears throat> um, pressure is what the word means. Sometimes it's translated anguish or affliction or trouble, but it just means to take two things and to squeeze them together with force. That's tribulation, that's pressure. And there's a variety of ways in which this pressure is manifested. I want us to consider some of these ways that we may experience tribulation. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Luke 6.22, Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and when they revile you, that is, they um, insult you. And cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. When they slander you, when they slander you to your face or they do it in gossip behind your back. 
All of these are things that attack the pride of man, our pride. They don't feel good. These are pressures. These are tribulations. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.13, this is a text we also looked at in our Sunday school this morning, that he had been made what he called the filth of the world, literally the rejects of the world, the things that are despised and not wanted, the offscouring that, of all things until now, the, literally the dirt or the junk that you would scrape off a plate or a pot just to get rid of it. That's how he says the world viewed him. That doesn't bode very well for people who seek the praise of men, does it? But for Christians, that is our reality. When we come to the experience of the Hebrew Christians in Hebrew, Hebrews chapter 10, turn there with me, this is a group of people who have been dispersed from their homes, um, and they're out of Palestine. Many are in Italy. And I want you to hear their particular experience looking down at verse 32 of Hebrews 10. The writer to the Hebrews says this, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, that is after you were saved, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated you were publicly insulted, he's saying. That's the idea of a spectacle. You were brought onto stage and paraded before men that they might ridicule you. This is a great struggle with their sufferings, reproaches, tribulations. There's the word for pressures again. And partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains. Another translation for that is you had compassion on the prisoners and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. See, these were Christians, Hebrew Christians, who suffered tribulation. And their particular tribulation was public insult. It was ridicule. But it was taken a step further as well. Many of them were imprisoned. Many had their property seized. Many were evicted from their homes and from the Jewish institutions like the synagogues, like we see in John chapter 9 with the blind man who receives his sight. And even from Rome itself, these people are totally uh, dispersed. They're evicted. They're made homeless. And we know that Emperor Claudius in 49 AD did just this. He evicted the Jews from Rome. But you see that these people these Christians, how, how, what was their response to this treatment? Well, verse 34 says, they joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods. They received to themselves, they allowed this defrauding, is what he's saying, to happen. Why? Because they have an enduring possession in heaven. They held on to this world's goods lightly because their true possession, their true worth was in Christ, seated in heaven, forever anchored to His throne. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, bearing up under this pressure, so that after you have done, notice this, the will of God, what's that? The suffering, 
for Christ, you may receive the promise. And here it is, for yet a little while, Habakkuk 2, 3, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. That's the second advent of Christ. He's coming back. He's coming with his reward. Wait on him. Be patient. Endure the suffering. Your reward will be revealed in all its fullness. He says, the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. That's the Lord speaking. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. His confidence was in the Lord to keep them even through the suffering. Praise the Lord. He will do the same with us, loved ones. So there's a spectrum of tribulation. It it can be as simple as ridicule. It can be more serious like imprisonment, the loss of property. And even for some, Jesus ordains that they lay down their very lives for him. That's not a calling that everyone is going to have who is a Christian, but it's a calling that all of us should be prepared to do if we are called upon for that. See, when we think about suffering for Christ, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be burned at the stake like a John Huss or a Polycarp, or in prison like Paul and the apostles, or even lose our property or our freedom by imprisonment. We need to be prepared for that again. But... Taking a stand with Christ means that you need to be prepared for people sneering at you, for people ridiculing you, for people shaming you, despising you, slandering you, speaking gossip about you behind your back. It may result in a job loss because you're not willing to participate in the activities of the employer which violate your Christian convictions. It may be that you're ridiculed in the classroom because you side with Scripture rather than with modern science or with anthropology or with humanistic philosophy. It may be that you lose your place in an ethnic community or a business community which has significant cost to you financially. It may be that you're isolated from your former friends for seeking to honor the Word of God rather than going along with their foolishness. It may be that you lose relationships with even family members who disown you for your faith in Christ. Persecution Tribulation comes in many forms. See, all suffer with Christ in some form or another. Not all suffer with Him to the same extent, right? And he, the author of the Hebrews makes that clear in chapter 12. He says, For consider Him, in verse 3, who endured such hostility from sinners against Himself. That's what Jesus endured. That was His sufferings. It was described as hostility from sinners against Himself. Consider that. Consider him who did that, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. In other words, you Christians in this time and you Christians in this time, you've not yet laid down your very lives as literal martyrs for the faith. You've not... um, experience the same extent of the sufferings of Christ. And even if you did lay down your life physically, you will never endure the wrath of God that was poured out on him that no man is able to experience. We all suffer with Christ. We're all partakers of his sufferings, but not to the same extent. So there's different types of suffering. There's also different sources of suffering, as we've seen from John 15. The world is against us. The devil is against us. And let me just give you one other source of suffering that I think is perhaps underemphasized in this 
doctrine of suffering with Christ, and that is our flesh, our flesh. That's what we learned in Romans chapter 7, that Paul was at war with his old self, with his flesh, with wanting to serve God with his mind, but with his flesh finding that he was serving sin and he despised himself. He said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He couldn't wait to be delivered from the body. Brothers and sisters, your flesh hates you. Your flesh will tempt you to disobey God and to sin against him every single day. Your own flesh is set against the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, but thank God the Holy Spirit is also set against our flesh and he wars against the flesh. And he now dominates the flesh. We no longer have to yield to the flesh as we learned in Romans 6 and 7. This is the idea of killing our sin daily. This is the idea of taking up our cross daily and following Christ in how we treat our husbands and our wives and our children and our co-workers and our brothers and sisters in the church, practical, feet-on-the-ground experience for denying self and preferring others before ourselves, which is exactly what Christ did with us. That is His sacrificial love. So, it's no wonder that when Paul talks about suffering with Christ, he talks about it in the present active tense. You are always suffering with Christ. Well, we're not always persecuted by the world in the way that we think about, but we are always persecuted by our flesh. Are you aware of that? Have you seen that, and are you seeing it more and more as you grow in grace? Brothers and sisters, we are engaged in a warfare constantly because of these three sources, the world, the devil, and our flesh. This is, I believe, the great tribulation that is in mind in Revelation chapter 7, that all the saints come through. Not just some special suffering that is reserved for saints at a particular time, but the plight of all of us because of the nature of the warfare that we all fight. It is a great tribulation, and it was promised by Christ. Ultimately, though, we have to be, I want you to be encouraged in this. These sufferings are not just the source of the world, the flesh, and the devil. They are all ordained by the Lord Himself. You remember the Lord Jesus when He was baptized, and God the Father pronounces His benediction, His blessing upon Him. This is my Son, my Son in whom I am well pleased. He loves the Son, and immediately after that, the Spirit of God drives him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and to experience hunger for 40 days. God himself drove the son of his love into the sufferings. Why? So that the son could glorify the father as he waited on the father rather than yielding to his own flesh or to the devil. And so it is with us. We wait on the Lord for his timing, for his deliverance, which is promised. He will deliver us, loved ones. The question is, how? In his time, in his way. Ultimately, our deliverance is secured. You close your eyes in death in this world and you will open them immediately in life in the world to come. He doesn't necessarily remove the suffering, the pressure. That's what I hope to capture on the front of our bulletin this morning. Thomas Watson, Christianity is not the removal of suffering, but the addition of grace to endure suffering triumphantly. That's the Christian life. 
Yes, we get pressed, pressed down and squeezed with, this, with these tribulations, but it is God Himself who holds us up underneath that pressure to prove to us, you're not utterly cast down and destroyed. Yes, you may feel body slammed to the ground time and time again, but He will not allow you to die ultimately in the spiritual sense. You are secure in Him, and He is manifesting His great power in us. There's a lot more I wanted to share this morning, but we are out of time. So we'll, we'll leave the third point of the satisfaction in our suffering until next time. Um, it's related to what we just started to talk about. The, the comfort that we have is knowing God has ordained this suffering for our glory, for this purpose, that we may also be glorified together with Christ. The path to glory is a path of suffering. It's not a path that the world expects or wants. The devil takes the message of Christianity and says, have the glory now. Walk in the path of glory now. And the true message of Christianity is, walk with Christ in his footsteps in the path of suffering now for the glory that is to be revealed at the last day. Let's pray together. Father, Thank you so much for the Word of God and for your truth which speaks, which alone can speak to our hearts and convince us of what is true. Father, I pray for your people this morning that they would be built up in the faith, that they would be confident in you, knowing that, Father, no matter what you ordain for us in this world, no matter what kinds of pressures you bring us, you are enabling us to glorify you because you are with us. You have linked us to Christ. We have the Spirit of God who is at work in us, who is greater than he who is in the world, who alone will cause us to become overcomers by faith so that we inherit the crown of life. It's assured. And Father, you want us to know this so that we would rejoice in our God even in the midst of suffering. Father, this is the glory of your life in us. We can rejoice even in the midst of suffering. Suffering is real and we feel it, Lord, and it hurts. And Father, we are in pain and we want to recognize that. We want to pour out our hearts to you. And we want to comfort each other as we experience suffering together, knowing that this is a common plight for all of us. But Father, we want to remember your strength in us, your promise, your faithfulness, and know that, Father, you are still for us, no matter what the circumstances might appear to our senses to be. May we trust the Word of God and not our feelings. Help us, Lord, to grow in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.